kids can go to Icon Kids now. And if the rest of you would join me as we read God's Word. From, his, from Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 13, it says, Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant and avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit, not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason, you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's servants, continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. And then from the Gospel of Mark in chapter 12, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Gracious and heavenly Father, thank you for your word. God, we have any number of thoughts, mentalities, uh, ways that we feel, uh, emotional Uh, baggage, all the things that we think and feel that may or may not be true. God, we know that we can't trust that ultimately. God, we realize that everything we feel, everything we think should be in subjection to your word. So God, I pray that as your spirit meets us today, meet meet us through the power of your word and through the power of your spirit. God, whatever needs to be reproved, reprove us. Where we need correction, correct us. Where we need comfort, comfort us. Where we need convicting, convict us. And where we need converting, convert us through your spirit, to your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we've been going through this series on idolatry. We've been hitting a lot of different ones. We're we're hoping to be able to hit a few more over the next month or so. And this particular topic is one that can be really difficult. It's one, it, it, it ties into what we talked about last week. If you remember, when we talked about idolatry, we said this, anything in which you look for ultimate satisfaction ultimate contentment, anything outside of God is an idol. Anything that you look for ultimate contentment, ultimate satisfaction outside of God is an idol. The hardest thing is when we take things that are good things, make them ultimate things and marry them, maybe sprinkle some Jesus juice on it and go, this is now God's will for my life, or this is where I find my greatest contentment because I've added something to Jesus and then called that the kingdom of God. And so most times when you look through scripture, there are things that are highlighted that are actually not necessarily bad things, but they've been made ultimate things. And now all of a sudden we start getting challenged when that's when someone says, hey, by the way, that might be idolatry. Well, that can't possibly be idolatry because this in and of itself isn't a bad thing. I thought idolatry was just all the bad stuff, worshiping the devil and having crazy trinkets that are supposed to have some sense of spiritual power to them and and worshiping those things. I thought that was the the idolatry stuff. I can't possibly be an idolater because this is a good thing. And so what we're going to talk about, we talked a little bit yesterday about how we make an idol out of our version of patriotism. 
We talked last, last week about the ways in which we will kind of exalt our views of God and country, create this new gospel, and then that is kind of what we hold to. And we've had to really step in and evaluate some things and go, man, like, what does it look like for me to actually see God as above country or national, uh, nationality or ethnicity? <clears throat> what does that look like? Well, today we're going to kind of talk a little bit more about that. We're going to talk about uh, the idea of not just patriotism, which is what we said last week, but what, what does it mean to engage in what we would might call nationalism? Because now, patriotism, we talked a lot about how that hurts people here, how it hurts us, and there's a lot more to go into. But now, when that gets put on steroids and now we start exalting the idea of empire over kingdom, how does that impact other people outside of even our borders? How might it uh, affect the way in which we export this version of Christianity to other countries? In other words, how might it be inhibiting our ability to be salt and light? How might it be inhibiting our ability to love our neighbor? Now, the scripture tells us that we're supposed to be salt and light. And sadly, our Christianity is just salty. But, it's, but, but we don't actually bring real valuable salt. Now, you got to understand this contextually, right? If you understand, before we even get to Romans, if you understand the value of salt, and you understand what that would have meant back then. It's interesting, back in the day, uh, when you had a certain amount of salt, salt was a very valuable commodity because that was the means by which you would preserve meat. They didn't have refrigeration. So you would be able to preserve food that way for longer periods of time. It also was so important as a resource that it would also be used as a form of currency. It's actually where we get the word salary from, that idea of saline. And so the idea that you would actually pay somebody, hear people say they're not worth their weight in salt. Well, that's why, because salt was this very valuable commodity. On some level, we are meant to be that kind of valuable commodity that also brings flavor, helps preserve what is good while pushing away what is bad. It's what we're called to be. But if we start mixing up our version of Christianity and we start adding something else or removing something or truncating it in any way, we no longer are bringing salt. We're just bringing saltiness, if you will. And that's something that ultimately how that looks on a national level and on a global level can be a really scary thing. So starting with Romans 13, this passage that we know, this passage that indicates that we're supposed to uh, be uh, in submission to local authorities. I'm going to read it again because this is one of those passages that gets quoted and thrown around a lot. And I think we misunderstand it. Uh, sometimes I think the people who use it this way, they do it on purpose. Let everyone, just the first verse, let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. Number one, submission is a part of being a believer. The idea of submitting to authority, both spiritual authority, governmental authority, that is a part, that's part and parcel of what it means to be a mature believer. As a matter of fact, just as a human being, just living in any place, you have to know to submit on some level. But as a believer, that's just something we all are supposed to engage and be able to figure out what that looks like. But what does it really mean to be in submission? Words are used like this in Scripture, and it's not always clear what's meant by them. And Paul is a great example. Paul says a lot of things that made sense contextually and historically then that in many ways we don't understand now. 
And so there are times you'll hear people say, like, man, I just wish I could just talk to Paul to figure out what he meant here, right? Because this particular phrase, it, it doesn't seem to have the same kind of relevance now because I don't understand contextually what it meant then. And so this is one where it's not as, as clear as you might think. I would say this is one of those passages that's one of those beat them up, rough them up passages. You use these passages just to beat people down, right? We use these passages to ensure that everybody remains obedient citizens. They often use this passage to crush dissent, to crush the idea of civil uh, disobedience, to discourage any form of civil disobedience. And the problem with seeing submission as unfaltering obedience is the fact that unwavering obedience to government authorities has often led to all kinds of problems. If we just take, just looking at just history, and we just take a look at just what are the, what's the outcome there, if this really means unwavering, unfaltering obedience to all government authorities, if that's what this means, then there's any number of horrible things that we clearly have seen in the past where people who otherwise may have been good people, may have been otherwise been good Christians, and when certain leaders are in place, they're saying we are now demanding X, Y, and Z, and you go, well, I gotta obey the rulers over me, what happens when the empire commands something that the kingdom says is sin? What happens when the empire commands something that the kingdom says is not loving your neighbor well? Then what do you do? Is that what this passage is saying? One historian, Howard Zinn, he wrote a people's history of the United States. He said this, historically, the most terrible things, war, genocide, or slavery, have resulted not from disobedience, but from obedience. So again, we have to ask the question, is this... What does this actually mean? And we live in a time, we've always lived in a time where something like this is very, very important. Even dissent is very important. There's always been times where the rise of the strong man, brutal leaders who are hard liners, ruling with an iron fist with little regard for justice, for the downtrodden. History is replete, again, with examples of citizens who have, uh, may have been Christians, at least self-professed, standing by while vulnerable neighbors were crushed by governing authorities. So what's meant by Romans 13.1? Or Paul's fellow biblical author, Peter, who wrote, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority. What is meant by this? So we got to go back. We got to look at, we say this often here. If you're new with us at this church, we often say, it's not enough. Never get to a point where you're reading scripture and start with, what does that mean to me? You never want to start with that. What did this mean to the original audience? What did the author intend for the audience to hear first before we get to? Because otherwise, if you start with what does this mean to me, you'll just make it mean whatever you want it to mean. And the scriptures were never meant to be used the way you take abstract art. There's an actual intentional purpose for the text. And so we have to do the work to figure out what this text actually means. So as we look through, you think through the history of this. Here's what we have to know. After Jesus' resurrection... King Herod got really, really mad, started arresting several of the uh, believers during that time, including James and Peter, put them on a public trial. And the night before the trial, an angel of the Lord woke Peter up, removed his chains, opened the prison doors, let him out of the main gate of the prison. We went through Acts for like, what was it, a year? If you go back and listen, we walk through all of that. But if you remember, all of this happened where Peter is uh, there, uh, uh, Peter was locked up, and all of a sudden, the Lord wakes him up in this dream, and, he, and the gates of the prison open. And, and, and yet, after escaping from jail, where he had been in prison for breaking the law, Peter goes on to write, 
Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as a supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Just let that sit for a minute. So he was in jail and, and the, the empire, the, the governing authorities have said, you're in jail. By implication, it means don't break out. You can just assume that, right? So he's, he, he's there, and he, he breaks out and then says, all right, y'all, make sure you submit to the government. Just let that sit. There's a, there's a dissonance there that I hope you see. Further, after Paul reaches safety, remember, Paul was, was in Damascus in a very similar way, and he escaped from a strongman city governor who was trying to arrest him by concealing himself in a wicker basket. And lower, remember, he had himself lowered down the city wall through a window. Then after reaching safety, Paul writes this surprising letter. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities which exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So my question is, are Peter and Paul hypocrites here? Are they hypocrites? I mean, how can they break the law and then tell you to obey the rulers? A little bit of a conundrum, right? How, how could that be? Are they just kind of telling Christians, hey, do as I say, not as I do? What, what's really on display here? And even though these passages have been used to maintain kind of the status quo, right, ever since uh, Constantine, the Roman emperor, kind of made Christianity the official religion of the empire, there's a big disconnect between Peter and Paul's actions and the way we have traditionally interpreted their words. So I'm going to say this, and then we're going to get into the nationalism stuff, but we got to understand this first, because if the leaders get to determine what the agenda should be, then we've got to ask some questions here. Because if they get to determine it, then we really don't have any say over, what, over the degree to which we can engage in kingdom work. But if we're supposed to sit back and go, let me evaluate whether the leaders and what they're saying are in concert with the kingdom agenda, then great. If not, what do I do? So the key to understanding this word is that word submit. And you got to take a look at this because the Greek word that's there that's translated as, as submit uh, is, or, or to be subject, it literally means to arrange stuff respectfully in an orderly manner. That's what it means. To have things done in order, arranged in the proper place, ensuring that things are put in their proper position, uh, that's kind of what this word uh, means. It's the simple meaning of kind of social orderliness, which would have been understood by original leaders, but it gets obscured in our English translation. You see this, used word, uh, this word used in uh, Ephesians 5, 22, when Paul encourages husbands and wives to submit one to another. There's this submission doesn't necessarily, well, you'll see, doesn't necessarily mean obedience, it actually means this, this rightful ordering of things. And it reflects God's concern for order and respect. You see the main point. Paul and Peter believed that governing authorities, they're necessary for keeping peace, necessary for keeping order, because we serve a God of order, not of anarchy or chaos. But here's where we go wrong. There is another word in the Greek that could be used for actual obedience, and they don't use those words here. There actually could have been a word. If it actually meant unwavering obedience, there's another word for that. And we see that used throughout the scriptures as well. And that one always suggests this kind of hierarchical context, right? This idea that there's the higher and there's the lower, obey the higher. 
And we see that uh, throughout. You see that in the relationship between children uh, and parents. You see that relationship when they talked about kind of, we talked about the difference between what slavery, slaves mean there, these kind of indentured servants and masters. Same thing. This hierarchical kind of thing that you see that's on display. That's a different word used uh, for submit. Completely different. Actually means actual obedience. So here's the important thing to remember. In the New Testament Greek, to submit does not always mean to obey. To submit here does not always mean to obey. And that's important. Because again, if we're talking about leaders, and if leaders are saying, do X, Y, and Z, am I in sin if I choose not to do it, if it conflicts with what God's called me to do? And there are people where this has been a lot of consternation. So even though Paul, Peter, and other followers of Jesus deliberately disobeyed laws that were in conflict with God's commands, they still submitted to the authorities. How? By accepting the legal consequences of their actions. Okay, I get it. In this country, this is what happens. And under this empire, if, if I don't do X, Y, and Z, we saw the same thing with Daniel, didn't we? There was a certain thing that was, uh, uh, this edict goes out. This is who you should pray to. This is how you should pray. He decided to pray to his God. Somebody told, knocked on him, told on him, snitched on him, and all of a sudden, he's got to face, he's got to face the music. He's got to face the fire. This idea that we still deal with the legal consequences of our actions is a, is, a, is a really big thing. So submission doesn't equate to obedience per se. Now, in some cases, it should, right? It depends on the person that we're submitting to, right? Submission to God should equal obedience to God. But mankind is feeble. Mankind is broken. We are prone to our own biases. So what do we do when a leader commands submission to ideals that build up the empire, but don't build up the kingdom. What do we do? What happens when rulers of a certain empire connect building the empire with building the kingdom? Then they're able to equate, and oftentimes they do, equate the empire's goals with God's goals. So now I can say, okay, because uh, I'm doing this and this is going to build our nation, and by the way, God really wants it too, here's why, do you realize how many horrific things have happened because we've been able to marry God to it? I always make the joke. Uh, it's not even a joke. It's kind of sad. You know, we loved, and you, you, you hear it here too, some of the, the horrible doctrine and, and I think some of the, the theological dangers of uh, some of the unhealthy versions that you see of this, what's called the prosperity gospel, right? One of the first versions of prosperity gospel, though, was manifest destiny. You think about God has given us this right, this divine right, as the British used to call it. This idea that because God has given some special unction or given us some special calling, we now are able to go disenfranchise whole groups of indigenous peoples. Why? In the name of God. How do we do that? Unless we take our own empire ideals, marry it, to these, what we call kingdom ideals, and now say, we're doing kingdom work. You see, it's very dangerous to just have unfettered uh, obedience, unadulterated obedience, without asking the question, okay, what should I be submitting to? And at what time should I actually step back and go, empire versus kingdom, empire versus kingdom? We said this last week, sometimes being a faithful Christian might mean being a bad American. Sometimes being a faithful Christian oftentimes meant being a bad Roman. And the only way you can get to that place with a clear conscience is when you start realizing what's kingdom and what's empire. Doesn't mean everything empire is bad. 
It just means everything empire lies in subjection to kingdom stuff. And so now you, you, you're seeing this, this where we are now as a nation and what we've done historically kind of gets to this place of kind of Christian nationalism. This idea that God is with us, so since God is with us, what we're doing is God's mission to the world. This idea that uh, for, for me, or if I'm a part of, uh, if, I'm a, if, if I work for the government, or if I'm obeying a governmental leader, then I'm supposed to actually be about America first. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Is that actually a godly way of thinking? Is that a kingdom mentality? Having a mentality that says America first. Sit on that. Christian nationalism has taken many forms over the years, and certain versions of it are even older than the U.S. itself. You can look back. Uh, there was a widespread belief among the Puritan settlers back in the 1600s that they had a special covenant with God and were called to be an example to the world, not just as far as in personal dealings, not just in terms of ways that we commune in worship, but actually how we function within kind of governmental spaces, in national spaces. And so once you believe that as a nation, you realize the only nation that ever had a mission from God was the nation of Israel. It's the only theocratic nation we have. We are not a theocratic nation. We never have been. Uh, we've often uh, put things out there to kind of give us the, the fact, at best, we've been a Christianized nation. But we've never truly been a Christian nation. So, so if, that's, if that's true, and we've never been this kind of theocratic, doesn't mean we can't be led by principles and led by ideals, but to get this idea that we're getting our marching orders as a nation from God the way Israel would have is very dangerous. But from the founding of the country onward, some Christians believed that the United States was the city on a hill. You'll actually, you know, I spend a lot of time as a nerd reading a lot of old sermons. A lot of old sermons from a lot of the early, even from the Great Awakening, to a lot of uh, political speeches from a lot of uh, political leaders back in the day who also were very religious. And the way that they marry those things together is dangerous. Because if you get me to believe that our country is the city on a hill, our country is the beacon of Christian light for the rest of the world, then we can almost do anything we want with relative impunity because we've got God on our side. And this was an idea that people called American exceptionalism. This idea that we are the city on a hill and we have been called by God to do X, Y, and Z. And a lot of that was rooted Early on, it, it looked one way, and it started to morph, and it started to turn into something even more dangerous. And you started seeing a lot of paranoia and a lot of conspiracy theories that we kind of see even in today's version of Christian nationalism. This idea that we're the city on a hill, right? And so, and so anybody else that's outside of the city on, on a hill, they are the threat. They are the threat. We have this agenda over here. And so you realize that the agenda to actually build the kingdom kind of never gets brought up anymore. The agenda to build the empire is all we end up talking about. That's how you know when idolatry is setting in, when you have more thoughts and concerns about empire over kingdom. And the sad thing is empire is very limited by certain borders, but kingdom has no border. So you can really clearly see if I'm guilty, if we're guilty of this kind of idolatrous sin of Christian nationalistic kind of thinking, you can see that really, really clearly. And you see, in many ways, a lot of the, the, the Christian nationalism that you saw uh, there started to morph. You start seeing in the 20th century, some of that language start, uh, uh, in many ways, coalescing in response to some of the same things that get attacked today. 
The idea of having kind of global community and engaging with people, for, with fellow image bearers from all over the world. People with whom we're supposed to actually care, right? We're gonna, we'll see it again later, but we see Jesus says, God make disciples of all nations. He doesn't say just make disciples of the people within the empire, nor does he say, hey, find a way to spread your empire there. Once you've assimilated them into your empire, now begin to disciple them. But that's actually how we've often functioned. If you look at a history of missions in, in this country to other countries, our missions have looked very much like that. How we export our kind of Christian nationalistic version of the gospel to these other countries. And so now we're almost trying to make them good American Christians in the middle of another nation. It's a really, it's a, it's a really scary thing because you start noticing, too, if those nations are in accordance with our ideals, then those are the Christians we care about. So it's easy for us to care about certain people in a certain nation, but, but if we feel like their nation is kind of out of bounds with ours, the Christians there don't matter. How many times are we praying for Palestinian Christians? How many times, how many of us have been praying for the Kurdish Christians that are getting bombed right now? But we can say things like, well, but they didn't help us in World War II. So it doesn't matter. See, that's, that's empire talk. That's not kingdom talk. So where do we go then? How, how, why, why do we not actually start with kingdom first? We've been trained. In many ways, we've even been enculturated to think empire first. And then maybe we might talk a little bit of kingdom, but kingdom is always in subjection to empire. And so you see, uh, over time, you started seeing it in uh, this kind of talk in churches, universities, tent revivals, and in the military. Of course, I'm a military veteran, and so uh, you learn this history very, very, I mean, a lot from, from Jump Street. You start learning what the history of kind of military engaging with certain countries looked like. And military, the American Christians, they enthusiastically agreed uh, during World War I. Uh, they agreed with the president at the time, Woodrow Wilson, that the war was, was a humanitarian cause to save Europeans from German aggression and to make the world more democratic, right? That's, again, we're going beyond just Christian now. It's like our job is to sell our governmental and political way of life, and we're going to export it like hotcakes, because that's actually what's best for everyone. So we go beyond just Jesus and uh, what it means to be redeemed from sin, and what it means to be reconciled to a holy God, and what it means to be in community where you love people well, and you esteem them as higher than yourself, so we have genuine communal peace and love for each other. Not just that, also make sure that you do government the way we do then we can actually rock with each other. But if we can't, we'll pray for you from afar. That's really dangerous. That's actually, you realize that our view, how we view our nation, how we view patriotism, how we view nationalism, it actually inhibits our ability to love each other well. It actually inhibits our, our ability to actually look like the kingdom that's coming. We keep saying, your kingdom come, your will be done, but, but, but we actually don't function that way. It's actually like, the empire comes, the empire's will be done. And so you see this, uh, you actually start seeing people talk this way. 1918, uh, Jen kind of talked about this a few weeks ago. Evangelist Billy Sunday announced that the war in, in World War I was Germany against America, hell against heaven. How do you, how do you get to a place where you're not just, we can, talk, we can talk empire, that's fine. Countries have disagreements all the time. But to now kind of make your agenda the God side and their agenda, the devil's side, 
That's what nationalism looks like. That's what idolatry looks like. That's actually not the heart of God. So you, it's the reason why a Navy chaplain, Henry Van Dyke, he added another verse to the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Here are the lyrics uh, for, for this uh, next verse here. We have heard the cry of anguish from the victims of the Hun, and we know our country's peril if the warlord's will is done. We will fight for worldwide freedom till the victory is won, for God is marching on. Now, on one sense, you're like, oh, what's the big deal? That's okay, right? Because it's us marching, so we're the ones that's on God's side. You realize that that can be extremely dangerous if what you're doing or what you're expressing or what you're trying to spread is actually wrong. If it's actually bringing carnage, if it's actually bringing uh, a horrible disaster to people's lives, then what? So it reminds me, so, so uh, I was at a church, I won't say where, and uh, at the, they had had a moment where they were like, hey, we're going to have a moment to kind of pray for the underground church in Iran. And there is. There's an underground church in Iran. And a lot of people kind of look at this church as one of the fastest growing churches in the world. Because there are, there are people there that are meeting and coming to faith and trying to figure out ways to engage. But how do we, it's interesting how often kind of empire gets in the way of how we pray and think about our fellow brothers and sisters uh, abroad. This person got up in front of this church and started to say, hey, we're going to pray. And what we really want to do is we just want to pray for like uh, ways that the, uh, the folks can find freedom. For sure, that's great. We want to pray that some of those people uh, would, would, would be released from the prison that Islam has them in. And then we want to be able to pray that, that uh, on somehow, some way, the evil, horrendous, kind of devilish leaders that are there would come to know Christ. Now, on the surface of that, first of all, that's just like a PR nightmare for a lot of reasons. But here's the other thing. We say this often. Pastors, Christians are often the worst historians. We often don't know history, but we love to opine. We love to have a strong opinion about a thing because we feel strongly about it. You do realize that, that uh, the, the veracity of your claim have nothing to do with the ferocity of your feelings. It has nothing to do with how strongly you feel a thing. You being sincere means nothing, honestly, because you can be sincerely wrong. So it doesn't matter how, so oftentimes we'll look at this, and here's what we forget. We forget the fact that what we've, the, the relationships that this empire has had with Iran actually helped create the vacuum for why they are where they are right now. But we don't know that. Why? Because we can set that to the side and now just talk about God, God, Christianity without realizing all the damage empire has done. And so you've got situations where you see uh, people who have been in these horrific situations. I remember being, when I was in basic training at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas, and I remember seeing an old picture of uh, the president at the time shaking Saddam Hussein's hand. Why? Because he trained at that base in order to help train him to fight against Iran. We equipped them with the same bombs they used against us like 20 years later. Why? Because we thought, hey, in order for us to be able to have a real stronghold there, what we had done as a nation, we'd gone into Iran before, Iran was neutral in some of the wars before we ever got into war with them. But we wanted to be able to take a stranglehold of those oil fields, so we did. And in so doing, all of a sudden, this vacuum created and the Shah of Iran was put in place. And they were like, we never want to see this kind of thing happen again. And so this harsh, very strict version of Islam was put in place as a reaction to all the ways they had been exploited by empire. But the first time we want to talk is the horrible slavery that these people have done. They're just horrific people, and we've got to pray for them. We've got to pray for them. It should have started with, we need to pray for real repentance for the roles that we played in damaging the livelihoods of the people there. 
Because that's actually what holistic gospel sounds like. But nationalistic gospel doesn't sound like that. And so honestly, what we do is we just realize that our, his truth keeps marching on, but our grief just stays in the back. And so you start seeing that, that over time, I, I've, I've seen this throughout churches when we had just gotten out of the military, just moved from Hawaii back to, uh, to the Chicagoland area, and we visited this church, went to this church, and uh, there are a lot of issues here, but at this particular church, one of the elders did not know that I was standing behind them. I didn't even know they were an elder. We were visiting the church, and, and behind, I could hear him saying, you know, I don't know. I know that there may be some good people over there. He's talking about a rock. We just need to drop a nuke and turn all those people to glass. An elder of a very, very, very large church. And it didn't even, I mean, it didn't even affect him at all. Why? Because if you're thinking in terms of kind of a Christian nationalistic sense, it's easy to actually demean and even blaspheme the very image of God that's on every single human being that's here. It's easy to do that. Because once you can come from this nationalistic perspective, everybody on the outside of the box, they can be a little less than human to you. It can be a little bit easy much easier to look at them as less than an actual image bearer. And so this is, this is the question we have to go, what do we mean? Should we ever feel this mentality of America first? And how do we compare that to God's kingdom first? Is it America first or is it kingdom first? And if you're right now going, it's both, there's a problem. Because there's a divorce in your mind that needs to happen. There's a divorce in our minds that need to happen. You see uh, what Jesus tells us. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded of you. He never, ever says, go spread your empire elsewhere. Never, ever does he. He, he. What he tells us is, it's not America first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's a big difference there. This is also true when you think about our faith. I was reading through um, this book, A Church Undone, Documents from the German Christian Faith Movement, 1932 to 1940. And what you'd notice in Germany, very, very interestingly, the German Christian movement was Germanized Christianity, supportive of Nazism. And so the church leaders involved in this movement believe that the church should be relevant to contemporary German experience. And when you read through some of the writings, you can actually read through the writings of, of the religious leaders of this movement, and it's striking how much they sounded like normal, healthy Christianity. They write of the cross. They write of the resurrection. They write salvation by faith. They write about so many things that we would say amen to. But then they would insert lines about pure German blood and the proliferation of inferior people and the need for the church to rekindle the sense of awe and loyalty to our blood and country. Matter of fact, there's one version, one translation of the Beatitudes uh, in, in German that's really interesting. Instead of saying what he says in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they're called the children of God, they say, happy are those who are at peace with their fellow Germans. They do God's will. It's not quite the same. And these are the kinds of distortions that happen when nationalistic devotion is combined with Christian devotion. Much of the language of faith may sound very similar to what Christians have believed throughout the centuries, but deep down, these little changes actually change everything. This is why America First can never be a slogan fitting for people who confess Jesus as Lord. You ha we have to rethink that for a minute. 
That can never be the way we find. I don't care what country we're from. It doesn't, look, this isn't just America. Any, plenty of people come. We got people here that have come from different countries. There's no question. You can have a sense of nationalism on, from any place. Thing is, we have such incredible political capital and, and resources that, that that kind of a thought and that kind of a feeling actually does real damage. So you've got this, this idea that in, in many ways, if you compare it to racism, America first can really feel like white people first, depending on what country you're from. And for a lot of people, that's exactly what it means for them. You would think that uh, we learn this uh, from, from taking communion together, right? We don't take, when we get ready to take communion, we don't come to the table owing one another uh, equal regard only to step away from the table to give preference to a nation or a race or a gender. Like, we don't do that at the table. And yet, why would we do that in our public discourse? Why would we do that in the way that we engage with, with fellow image bearers and fellow brothers and sisters in Christ from all over the world? It's a tragic thing to get caught up in a type of nationalistic pride. Again, we said this last week. Nothing wrong with being thankful for where you are. Nothing wrong with acknowledging the values and the benefits about living in a certain country. Nothing wrong at all. To the degree that the benefits of the empire help us build the kingdom, praise the Lord. To the degree that the empire precludes us from seeking the kingdom, that's where we mourn. That's where we dissent. That's where we protest. That should be what the, the heart of every believer, and it has been throughout, the, the, throughout uh, centuries. Christians have always uh, been that way. As a matter of fact, this is, this is the very sort of thing Jesus is speaking of when he said, no one can serve two masters for such a one will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. So you cannot be a devotee of America first. You can't do it and still at the same time say you love Jesus. You can't do it. Now, this, this doesn't mean that we don't defend. This doesn't mean that you don't protect yourself. That's not what we're talking about. What we're saying is you cannot have this mindset of I'm going to do whatever I have to do in order to uh, uh, push myself above at the same time pushing somebody else below me as a nation. And this is why when you hear what Jesus tells us, and he tells us in, in Mark 12, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. So here's the question. Does anything come ahead of our ability to love our neighbor? Because anything that, that stops you from loving your neighbor, we've been saying this through every single example of idolatry. Idolatry is a form of self-worship. It just is. Whatever that idol is, there's something about that idol that reminds me of me, and I love me so much. I love being reminded of how great, how wonderful, how talented, how gifted, how blessed I am. I want to be reminded of those things on such a level. Here's the thing. Anything that's really worshipful should move you beyond yourself, not only especially loving God more, in the ways that you love other people. Am I empowered to love other people better? Am I empowered to, to see people, hear people, be able to understand where they're coming from and engage them well in order to love them well? Because if I'm not, then whatever it is I'm clinging to, there's something faulty and it very well may be an idol. So may nothing come before our yearning for God. May nothing come before our yearning for his kingdom. Not self, not culture, not family, not ethnicity, not your country. But may all of those things be either used for 
or rejected in the name of God for his kingdom and for his glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are, you are good and you love us in the midst of our idolatry. And God, you, you came and you, you condescended down to us, lived among us, lived the perfect life, died a death that we could never die, that we would never voluntarily die, and then showed your power in rising. And you did all of that to redeem us, to buy us back, to crush our idols in ways we could never crush, to expose idols that we would never admit. God, for you to do that without anything that we did to deserve it, God, we're overwhelmed by that. God, I pray that even in the places where we don't see those idols, that you would begin to crush those. God, I know it's so easy for us to be able to want to come to you only to find comfort, but God, I pray that we come to you to also be broken. God, I pray that in our brokenness, we would not be left in shame, but we would have incredible victory because we have freedom from the idols that have enslaved our hearts and our minds. Father, I pray that you would do a work in each and every one of our hearts and you would find places where we need to be made discomforted. Give us a holy discomfort where it's necessary. And then, God, I pray that as you do what, is, what we do uh, whenever we're training, that you break down all the things that shouldn't be there and then build us up in you. God, we pray that you would do this, that you would thoroughly finish this work that you started. We pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to this table, we're coming to proclaim the very thing that we say that we believe. We're coming to proclaim that this very Jesus that we're saying we're clinging to, this is what's first in our lives. This is what takes precedence over everything. And by precedence, that doesn't mean that we just have mentally placed it in this, this, this first level of our taxonomy of important things. What we're saying is this takes first priority, which means the things in my life that clearly are idols. I've been humbled, I've been broken, and I'm always open and aware, or God is increasingly making me aware of where my idolatry is. This means that our hearts don't just get closed off to those things. When we come here, we're not just coming here because of our individual relationship with God. We know that's vitally important. We're coming in great joy knowing I've been reconciled to this holy God. All of my idolatry has separated me from this holy God but he's come and he loved me enough. He didn't wait for me to get my idolatry right. He came and crushed them and said, I'm the only God and I'm going to show you and I'm going to draw you to myself and I'm going to love you. With love and kindness have I drawn you. And in that, I'm going to remake you to love others the way I've loved you. So when you come, when we come as a part of this, we're not coming as people that have arrived. We are people that have been dragged to the cross. We are people, some of us had to come kicking and screaming. Some of us, God just knocked knocked on the door and we opened. Some of us, he kicked the door in. And we're thankful because the ways in which he has come and rescued our hearts, we realize there's nothing I've done. Even if I get some of these things right, maybe I'm not guilty of nationalism. This isn't the place to go. And you know what? I know some people that need to hear this. No, because ultimately there's some level of idolatry that we need to also be convicted by. So this ultimately, if you know that this is you, as we, the stuff we talked about, this isn't a place to just come head hanging in shame, drooped down and feeling just like, I'm so bad, how could God ever love me? These are the people God came to save. Your idolatry may not, may not look like mine, but I'm just as guilty. 
And so we come with a heavy heart. We come. We always say part of repentance is saying the same thing about sin that God does. And so the first step is, God, I can see that this grieves your heart. And I need, the, I need your work. I need the Spirit to actually break my heart for the things that break yours. And this is where you are. You see where your brokenness is, but you know where your hope is. Then this table is for you. If this isn't where you are, if you're just kind of like, I don't, either A, I just don't know about the, the Jesus thing. I'm not sure that I actually trust that. Or maybe I believe and I love Jesus, but I'm seeing some things that are real idolatry and I'm not sure I really want to give those up. Then let this time pass. Not because we're trying to evaluate who's in the club and who's not. None of that is the case. For some of us, I know that there are many of us that there are times we probably should just let this pass. Because this work that Jesus wants to do in our heart, this isn't about judging anyone. This is about the grace of God on display in repentance. It's fully the grace of God that we get an opportunity to be confronted with our own idolatry for him to love us enough to say, I'm going to bring real conviction. I'm going to bring deep emotional response to your sin because that's how you grow. That's how I change you. That's how I melt. That's how I mold you. That's how I convert you. So if this is where your hope is, if this is where your trust is, then this is your table. As our volunteers come, we want to remind you that here at Icon, we do communion by the process of intinction. So what that means is we'll walk down the middle aisle. You'll walk down and you'll take a piece of gluten-free bread and you'll dip it in wine or juice as you see fit. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus gave thanks for the Passover meal. And you think about who's at that table. We talk about this all the time. You think about all the idolaters that are at the table at this point. Folks that will betray, folks that will lie, folks that will hide, folks that will have a hard time claiming his name. All people who are struggling with various forms of idolatry, people like us. And he looks at them and he says, this is my body given for you. Not for the people that have their idolatry worked out, given for you. Take and eat of it. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, blood poured out for the remission of sins. Take and drink of it and do this in remembrance of me. Here's what Paul tells us. He reminds us that every time we do this, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. Why are we doing this? Why do something? It's, I've heard people, kind of, I've seen people write this, like it's the weirdest thing that these Christians seem to focus on this gruesome, grisly death so much. That religion seems like a religion of death. It's so grisly. You do realize that the reason why we focus on this is not just to have this abnormal fixation on death or the details thereof. It's because we realize it took that kind of a death to rescue me. And I'm constantly reminded that as bad off as I might see myself or areas where I fall or as bad off as I see the world, as bad off as I see the nation, no matter how much I try, no matter how much willpower I have, no matter how woke I get, I will never be able to fix this. There is something outside of me, outside of us, that I need desperately in order for all things to be made new. And so when we come and we proclaim this, ultimately what we're saying is this is a reminder of the only thing that I have hope in. My hope is not in my, national, my nationalism, it's not in my ethnicity, it's not in my neighborhood, it's not in my gender, it's not in any of the things that so often we can kind of attach ourselves to. My hope is only in Jesus.
If that's where your hope is, if that's what you trust in, if that's what you're clinging to, then come, be reminded, be convinced, taste and see that our Lord is indeed good. Let's come and eat together.